0: With John Wall and CJ Toledano on the iHeartRadio app, the DraftKings YouTube channel, or wherever you listen to your podcasts. The volume. In the NBA, the game can change in an instant. But no matter how the action unfolds, DraftKings Sportsbook has your back. This week, new customers can score 150 instantly in bonus bets just for betting five bucks on basketball. Win or lose, you get an instant up. They even have great same-game parlays. So many different ways to bet the NBA. Download the DraftKings Sportsbook app now and use code HOOPS. That's H-O-O-P-S. New customers can get 150 instantly in bonus bets betting just $5 on basketball, only on DraftKings Sportsbook with code HOOPS. The crown is yours. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. In New York, call 877-8-HOPE-NY or text HOPE-NY to 467-369. In West Virginia, visit www.1800gambler.net. Please play responsibly. In Connecticut, help is available for problem gambling call 888-789-7777 or visit ccpg.org. On behalf of Boot Hill Casino and Resort in Kansas, must be 21 or older in most eligible states, but age varies by jurisdiction. See draftkings.com/sportsbook for details and state-specific responsible gambling resources. Eligibility and deposit restrictions apply. Bonus bets expire 168 hours after issuance. Terms at sportsbook.draftKings.com/slash basketball terms. All right, welcome to Hoops and I here at the volume. Happy Friday, everybody. I hope all of you guys had an incredible week. We have a jam-packed show for you today. We're gonna do two game breakdowns from the last couple of days. Pacers-Bucks had a rematch the other night, which was highly entertaining. Not going to talk about the basketball-stealing shenanigans at the end, but there was a lot of interesting basketball to get into in that game. Then the Kings and the Thunder last night had the showdown of top-tier young perimeter talent that the Kings ended up winning. We're going to talk about that game from the perspective of both teams. Then the Cleveland Cavaliers have had a tough stretch of injuries. uh, Injury news, I should say, coming out today. Darius Garland broke his jaw. Evan Mobley's having Arthur Scropp. I think he's having some form of knee surgery. So the Cavs are now uh, thrust into a position where they have some decisions to make. So I want to talk about that a little bit. The Golden State Warriors now have negative odds to make the playoffs, which is super interesting. I want to dive into that a little bit. And then last but not least, at the end of the show, we're going to do our first edition of a weekly MVP ladder that we're going to start doing at the end of weeks so that we can kind of bounce around more to individual players and talk about how they're playing around the league. You guys know the drill. Before we get started, subscribe to our brand new YouTube channel. It means mean a lot to me if you'd scroll down and hit that subscribe button. Don't forget about our podcast feeds, wherever you get your podcasts, Under Hoops Tonight. Follow me on Twitter at underscore JasonLT so you guys don't miss any show announcements or the film threads that I do in the morning. And keep dropping mailbag questions in the YouTube comments. We're going to be hitting mailbag questions a couple times throughout the week next week. And then last but not least, before we get started, basketball is back. It's been a long off-season, and if you're like me, you're psyched to be seeing all these pro and college games on TV. And while I love watching these games again, there's nothing better than being there live. And the best way to do that is on GameTime, the fastest-growing ticketing app in the United States. GameTime is the only ticketing app that gives you peace of mind with your purchase. They let you see the view of your seat before you buy so you know exactly what to expect when you arrive. They're all in prices. Show your total up front so you always know you're getting a great deal. And it takes no time at all. You can buy tickets in seconds with just two taps. So take the guesswork out of buying tickets with GameTime. Download the GameTime app, create an account, and redeem code HOOPS for $20 off your first purchase. Terms apply. Again, create an account and redeem code HOOPS, that's H-O-O-P-S, for $20 off. Download GameTime today, last-minute tickets, lowest price Guaranteed. All right, let's talk some basketball. So uh, if you guys remember the in-season tournament game, the Thursday night game last week, the, one of the ways that the Pacers were picking the Bucks apart at the end of the game was just bringing Brooke Lopez into pick and roll with Miles Turner. And when Miles Turner would come up into a high drop, it was an easy pocket pass where Miles Turner was finishing at the rim. Right when uh, Bru- uh, excuse me, when uh, Brook Lopez was in his deeper drop, that was when uh, uh, Halliburton was getting downhill and making his floater and picking the team apart with his passing. Right when he was switching, Tyrese Halliburton was either driving right by him. There was even a big pull-up jump shot that he hit at the end of the game over Brooke Lopez. He was just picking them apart by attacking with Miles Turner and pick and roll and taking advantage of Brook Lopez in his lack of foot speed, right? Well, one of the adjustments the Bucks made in this game is they just put Giannis on Miles Turner. An adjustment that I talked about a lot during that tournament as just a way to counter this specific Indiana Pacers attack. Because like Miles Turner Tyrese Halliburton pick and roll has been one of the most devastating actions in the league this year. They have other actions that they run. They run guard to guard screens, right? You're going to see a lot of Tyrese Halliburton, uh, a buddy healed ghost screens and things like that, right? But their bread and butter is that Miles Turner pick and roll or pick and pop, right? And uh, in this particular case, by taking Giannis and putting him on Miles Turner, it allowed them to aggressively switch. Those ball screens, you can tell right away from the opening tip, and I clipped several examples of it and put it in a thread this morning. You can find it on my Twitter feed at underscore Jason LT. But Giannis was just aggressively switching, and again, there's uh, there's different kinds of switching, right? Like there's a switch that's like a soft switch where like you're taking on the new defensive assignment, but you're basically playing back and waiting for them to kind of attack you. And then there's aggressive switching where as the player comes off the screen, he's kind of caught off guard by the fact that you're like coming up with ball pressure, and he thinks. He's going to find an opening on the other side of that screen, but instead he's finding long arms in his face, right? Early in that game, they forced a quick turnover by uh, hitting Tyrese Halliburton with one of those aggressive quick switches. And then by putting Brooke Lopez on Obi Toppin, it opened up another set of problems for Indiana because, one, Milwaukee was kind of conceding the pick-and-pop three to Obi Toppin. And then when Obi Toppin was rolling to the basket, he just doesn't have a lot of reps as like a pick-and-roll big man, right? And you could see plays where Toppin would get the ball on the roll and he just wouldn't know how to navigate Brooke Lopez waiting for him at the rim. And so as a result of that, and then they were doing a good job, they were doing a lot more switching in general, especially on guard-to-guard actions. They just kind of made it a lot harder for Indiana to get the openings that they typically get In their offense. And then on the other end of the floor, Giannis goes for 64 points. And almost all in his bread and butter, of the 64, 36 of those points came in transition and in pick and roll. And again, this is all about getting Giannis downhill towards the rim because. In pick and roll, they were setting a lot of those ball screens pretty far away from the basket, and it was all geared around trying to get Giannis downhill, to where the guy that's waiting for him is technically in position between Giannis and the rim, but he's got such a head of steam going that he's kind of slaloming around those guys and getting all the way to the basket for the easy buckets and, and again the Pacers they part of it is just poor discipline they're not a good help side team a lot of it also it, it you know some of it gets dressed up as schematics like oh they're chasing people off the three-point line and it's like you know what's a higher percentage shot than a three-point shot even for an elite shooter is a wide open dunk for Giannis like that's that's worth two points every single possession I'm sorry right so like some of that is I I dislike that Indiana kind of plays that way um, uh, but it's, it's about putting him into his, in into his advantage situations, which is getting downhill and taking advantage of the Pacers weak help side. I did want to take a second to shout out Giannis for his footwork. I think we talk a lot about, uh, that, you know, Giannis is just like a br- bully ball bruiser. Right. And here's the thing. There are lots of really good athletes in the NBA. And for whatever reason, there are certain athletes that transcend everybody and are able to weaponize that in a way that, you know, impacts winning at a much higher level. And then there are top-tier athletes that just can't really put that together over the course of their careers. And, you know, there are all these different elements to athleticism that go under-discussed. Like, when it comes to Steph Curry, I don't think we talk enough about his stamina and just the simple fact that he's in such incredible shape and that he's constantly running around everywhere. And the way that he will find openings just by capitalizing on those little bits of uh, of. Situa- like little tiny uh, segments of possessions where a guy relaxes for two seconds and then Steph breaks open and he kills you with a three, right? Well, another very important part of athleticism is footwork. And footwork specifically is the best way for you to weaponize your athleticism. Because think of it like this. If you are standing straight up with your feet together and I push you on the shoulder, you're just going to fall over because you don't have a very strong base, right? If your base is wide and your knees are bent a little bit and I shove you on the side, you're not going to fall over. That's a basic concept as it relates to balance, right? But that's stationary. Now, footwork is what allows you to stay balanced while you're making athletic moves in various directions, whether it's side steps, like for instance, if you're taking a step back three one of the most important things that I teach my kids that I train like when you're taking any sort of step back move you need to actually as you're stepping back kick that le- let's say I'm stepping back to my left you have to stick that left foot really far out to catch your side to side momentum so that when you elevate you go straight up and down and get good lift and balance into that step back jump shot right little things like Giannis in his spin moves out of the there was a bucket that he had out of a, a drop-off pass where I think it was buddy heel that was waiting for him tagging the roller and he caught uh, uh in in a position where he was able to spin off of his right foot and in in uh, uh like had absolutely perfect footwork where he planted and spun off of two feet back towards his left side and went up and dunked with two hands. And it's like, how many guys do you see catch that ball there? And they don't know what to do when the guy's right in front of them? So they either stop and hesitate and the advantage is gone or they run the dude over. Cause they don't know what they're doing. And it's like, no, Giannis is like, I have practiced this spin move and nailed this footwork down a hundred thousand times in my life. I'm going to just go to this move. And there's no way this dude's going to stay in front of me. Giannis has an excellent Euro step. It's one of his best moves that he uses to navigate things in traffic. And again, Euro steps they're, uh, uh, they require a great deal of leg strength and balance, but when you have that footwork down, you have the ability to stay on on your base and to stay balanced while slaloming between guys. There are so many different elements to that that go underrated, and specifically footwork, the ability to get to your spots without traveling and without losing your balance, while also making it so that you can absorb contact from defenders while they're swiping at you and digging down and bumping you off your base. those That sort of thing is what, puts a top-tier athlete in a position to be successful versus a top-tier athlete being in a position to be underwhelming or to underachieve, right? And I think it's something with Giannis that we've constantly overlooked over the years is this dude is incredibly coordinated. Maybe not up top in terms of his like touch and stuff like that, but in terms of down below and his ability to... Uh, keep a solid base and to navigate any traffic situation with quality footwork is something that we have to give him more credit for. Uh, Brook Lopez was incredible in this game. He had six blocks. The uh, one of the nice things, or you know, I shouldn't say nice thing, but one of the uh, uh, you know bits of collateral damage here with 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 Pat Connaughton being out is it's forced the Bucks to play guys like Andre Jackson, right? Or guys like uh, lo- like Marjan Beauchamp more often, right? So they actually brought four guys off the bench in this game. And campaign was the only guy they brought off the bench that was a small guard. So in a nine-man rotation, six of the guys that they were playing were all big in some way, shape, or form, right? Whether it's uh, smaller with more athleticism or bigger with size. They just have a lot of size on the floor. And so when they're pressing up and chasing the Pacers off the line, they're funneling him into Brooke at the rim. And he was awesome protecting the rim in this game. And then I wanted to shout out Bobby Portis. He had 19 points in this game. Three three-point shots, but he scored ten of his nineteen points in the post. He was straight up attacking Obi Toppin in straight post-ups. He's got a really good right-handed hook. He also made like a right-handed push shot as he kind of faded over his right shoulder. He had a turn and face like kind of jab step jumper over Obi Toppin. It was kind of like a nice offensive option for the Bucks in this game. That like they did try to run some action to try to get Portis. Like they'd run like a wedge screen to try or a cross screen to try to get him in better post position. And Portis in general does a good job of fighting for position. But the beauty of it is like their straight matchup, meaning they didn't need to force a switch or anything. Bobby Portis was able to attack his matchup head-to-head, Obi Toppin, and get easy baskets there. To get 19 out of him is huge. He was uh, big in those pick-and-pop situations with Giannis. That's where he hit a couple of his threes. Um, And then on, on the Pacers front, I thought Halliburton in general was caught off guard by the aggressive switching that we saw from Milwaukee. You could tell like he just wasn't expecting that as a counter. And some of it, too, is like he spazzed out a little bit. Like, there was a turnover where he kind of spazzed out when Giannis got on him. There was a play in the second half where he'd like quickly settled for this, like, really tough step back three going to his right when there was like 10 seconds on the shot clock. And it's like, hold on, like, get Giannis on a switch. Okay, cool. Giannis is an excellent defender, but you're one of the quickest players in the NBA and you have one of the best pull up, you have the best pull up jump shot in the NBA this year. So you get Giannis on a switch, space him out because now the help side defense is not as good and see if you can't beat them off the dribble more methodically rather than just spazzing out and doing something silly. And so I think that's one of the things I love about playoff series is, you know, you 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 have your first punch and, you know, one team wins based on both teams' first punch and then some team makes a counter and then usually the team that a uh, response to the counter is a little slow to respond. And sometimes that'll even up the series. And then game three, you'll be like the next adjustment to that whole thing. Right. And like, th- because both teams wanted to win this game so bad after all of the stuff that surrounded last week's game. And obviously you saw from the basketball incident that there's some animosity between these two teams. Like these were playoff style games. Not just today, but also, or not just Thursday, but also in this particular game. And so, like, you're seeing a lot of that, like, playoff style adjustment taking place. And those are the kinds of things that, you know, Tyrese Halliburton, those are the hurdles that Tyrese Halliburton is going to have to navigate over the rest of his career if he's going to get. Where he wants to go, and then I mentioned this earlier, but the the defense, the help defense, just has to be better. And again, I understand the prioritizing the three point line and and wanting to get out and run off of layups because there's usually so like essentially the, the 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 take I've seen a lot, and I haven't actually seen this mentioned by the coaching staff. It's more from like Pacers reporters and fans who kind of uh, uh accentuate this as if it's like a strength, but they'll be like, oh. Pacers will chase you off the three point line. They don't really care much about helping at the rim and when they make when other teams make layups, they usually have bad floor balance. So like think of it this way, if I drive if you're the basket, if the basket is where the camera is and I drive aggressively to the rim and I lay it in. And I lay it in and I run past the stanchion. And the Pacers just quickly grab the ball, get the inbound, and they're running down the other way. They're 5-on-4, right? That's the way they look at that, right? And there is some advantage there in terms of, like, when that happens, those are good opportunities to run. I'm pro running off of made baskets, but conceding made baskets is silly too. And, like, there were a lot of possessions where you'd see, you know, Buddy Heald just standing next to Malik Beasley rather than digging down on on a drive out of the weak side corner. And it's like, I get it. Malik Beasley's shooting the shit out of the ball this year, but at a certain point, even a Malik Beasley wide-open catch-and-shoot three that might be worth you know 1.4 points per shot or whatever is a lower percentage shot than the wide-open slashing layup. And, so like, and, and again, speed is an advantage in this roster, and I think they can rotate better. And f- to put it pr- frankly, I saw them last week defend at a higher level than what they showed in, in this particular game. And so it's just something that, again, if, if the Pacers want to get to where they want to go, They need to eventually upgrade that Obi Toppin position, but that's a trade deadline issue. But on the court, they have to do a better job in their help and recover situations. We are welcoming a new show to iHeart and the DraftKings YouTube channel. It is called Point Game with John Wall and CJ Toledano. It is an insider's look at the NBA and the culture surrounding the league. Every week, the five time All Star and number one pick in the 2010 NBA Draft, John Wall will give his unique perspective on the hottest topics in the league and tell the best behind the scenes stories from his time in the NBA. CJ will bring his A-list comedian buddies to keep it light and fire off some hoops takes. Plus, John will be inviting current and former NBA players, friends, and teammates to join the show as well to give their unfiltered accounts of what really goes on in the league from a player's perspective. So check out Point Game with John Wall and CJ Toledano on the iHeartRadio app, the DraftKings YouTube channel, or wherever you listen to your podcasts. Ever needed something for your home but don't have the cash or credit to pay for it? Let's chat about how to get what you need when you need it. You can do that at Aarons. Yep, you can rent to own appliances like washers, dryers, or refrigerators, furniture for your living room or bedroom, even tech like computers and gaming systems. Plus, Aarons has great brands like HP, Samsung, and Ashley, and you can pay a little at a time until it's yours forever. But here's the cool part. Say you're renting a 65-inch smart TV and decide you don't want it anymore. At Aarons, you can return it at any time. Or maybe you want to downsize to a 55-inch or upgrade to an 86-inch. You can do that too. Return it, then take home something new. Life's always changing. With Aarons, your stuff can change right along with it. Keep it, return it, upgrade it. Aarons fits your life instead of the other way around. So check out your nearest Aarons store or visit Aarons.com for more details. Approval isn't guaranteed and some restrictions apply. See your local store for details. Alright, moving on to Thunder Kings. So uh OKC makes a late game run here. The Thunder or the Kings kind of controlled this game, but OKC goes on a late game run. They get it to two. It's 119, 117. The uh Mark Dagenault runs this uh hammer action. Now remember what a hammer action is, is like they run like a ball screen or a dribble handoff on the right side of the floor. Then on the left side of the floor, they have the guy in the corner basically set a flare screen for a shooter coming off the wing. And so essentially what it does is you're taking advantage of these two help defenders and their tendency to be watching whatever the hell's going on over here with this dribble handoff or ball screen, and you might be able to catch the guy guarding the shooter off guard on that screen and have an opening for a skip pass for a wide-open three. They ran it for Chet Holmgren, which, like, initially you go, like, this is what's so cool about Chet is, as a center... And in, in this particular play, he had Trey Lyles on him, and Trey Lyles is more... You know, uh, he's more capable of navigating these types of things, but you can imagine that working really, really well when Chet has a center on him, too, because the center is going to have no idea what the hell's going on because he's not used to dealing with shooters coming off flare screens, right? But it still works. But Josh Giddy puts the pass a little bit too far to the left of Chet, uh, if, if Chet's standing right here a little bit to Chet's left, and it forced him to kind of break his rhythm a little bit, and Trey Lyles was able to recover and get a contest on it. it was a, that was a really good example to me of the importance of precision passing. Like, when you're playing elite defenses, and again, this, uh, the, um, the Kings have been defending better in this recent stretch, but it's a problem when you get down the line to the higher quality defenses that you face down the line. The openings are this big. And so something silly like making a bad pass that is outside of the shooting pocket that breaks the shooter's rhythm could buy the defense enough time to, to rotate in that specific case. And I thought that was interesting because it ended up being one of those things where Josh Giddy misses him. As a result, Trey Lyles is able to get a good contest. He misses that shot, right? They go down the other end in semi-transition. The Thunder ended up getting an offensive rebound on that play. And Josh Giddy, I thought, forced a floater that he probably shouldn't have taken. You could see Shea Gildress-Alexander getting a little annoyed. But they pushed the other way. And De'Aaron Fox hits Chet Holmgren with this disgusting hesitation move, like gets into the middle of the floor, gets the ball into his right hand, and just looks up at the rim, and it causes Chet to step up and open his body away from that left side of the rim and face this way. De'Aaron crosses back over, and that buys him the angle, the angle to get back to his left hand and finish at the rim. Now it's 121-117. And then on the other end, the Thunder end up running a couple of— they uh, run a pick-and-roll with Shea and, and Josh Giddy, where Josh Giddey short rolls and the Kings blitz. And in the process, they get a wide-open three again for Chet Holmgren on the left wing. This time, plenty of time. This time, the pass is in the right spot. Chad just misses it, and then on the other end, uh, uh, the Kings miss on the next position, but they go down again. Shea has an isolation on the right wing. They dig down. It's another wide-open three for Jalen Williams, and he misses it. So some tough shot luck there for Oklahoma City down the stretch. But then again, again, the Kings, for the most part throughout that game, got better shots. They were up 10 before the Thunder kind of had their wild comeback. I did think it was an interesting kind of late-game sequence, though, in an example – of just some of the interesting stuff that this team has available to them, from the standpoint of like Chet being able to run shooting actions and have it actually be a high percentage play, the ability to use Josh Giddey as a screener and what he can do in the short role as a decision maker, and then just simple like if you put uh, Shea in... you know we talked about this in the in the uh, Dallas Mavericks game against the Lakers when you put a scorer at the elbow and like Shea was attacking at the elbow on that that dig down for Jalen Williams, but also like Luca was killing the Lakers with elbow isos. From the elbow, you're so much closer to the basket that guys have to kind of get into help position sooner. And so that forces them to come further off of shooters. When you start your action 30 feet from the basket, even if I do beat you off the dribble and get downhill, there's a lot more time for people to recover before I can really start causing problems. And I thought it was just an interesting kind of uh, offensive approach from Oklahoma City. But obviously, the Kings win the game. Malik Monk and De'Aaron Fox were incredible. They uh, combined for 59 points. In 16 assists, you know, we, I've been talking a lot about this idea of elite perimeter defense teams against the Kings, and this is the latest in a long line, right? Like, they really struggled with the Clippers. They really struggled with the Houston Rockets. They really struggled with the New Orleans Pelicans. Teams that can put long athletes on their guards— can cause them some problems. Now the Thunder are not as long on the perimeter. As, like, cause they're, they're guys like Lou Dordan and Shea. They're not six, eight, you know, they're not, they're not uh, like some of these perimeter defenders they saw with the Clippers or, um, uh, or with the Pelicans that said, like they are excellent perimeter defenders. And sometimes it's like, you just have to do better than the guy across from you, right? Like this was a big thing in that series against the Warriors. It was a lot of Gary Payton. It was a lot of Andrew Wiggins. It was a lot of good on-ball defenders for the Warriors that De'Aaron Fox and Malik Monk just found a way to get downhill on. And the big thing foundationally is De'Aaron Fox's pull-up jump shot. He's just having an unbelievable pull-up jump shot season this year. He's shooting 46% on them. 57% when you wait it for threes. That's 1.14 points per shot. To give you an idea... There are 18 players in the NBA this year that have taken at least 150 pull-up jump shots. Uh, uh, Fox's 1.14 points per shot is second in the league. So he's been the second best pull-up jump shot maker in the league by volume, or um, uh, among uh, that specific set of volume. Now, to give you an idea of just how insane Tyrese Halliburton is, he's a full tenth of a point better per pull-up jump shot than De'Aaron Fox in second place. So Tyrese Halliburton is like head and shoulders better than everybody shooting pull-up jump shots this year. So shout out to Tyrese. But... De'Aaron Fox, it's just that combination of elite pull-up jump shooting and the downhill athleticism. I'll give you an example. That little hesitation move I talked about when it was 119-117 to put the Kings up 121-17. If De'Aaron Fox makes that little hesitation move into the lane and he's a 35% pull-up jump shooter, Chet probably doesn't react to it. Because he's probably thinking, oh yeah, he's gonna take a little short jump shot. I'd rather have him take that shot, right? But because De'Aaron Fox has been knocking that thing down all year long, guys are starting to react to that, and that's allowing him to get downhill easier. I just thought, in general, De'Aaron Fox finished really, really well uh, at the rim against Chet. And again, like Chet has been, you know, Chet Chet can get buried by some of these bigger bigs, but the dude can block shots, and and Fox was just not bothered by him in this game. And to give you an idea of where his jump shot is right now. points per pull-up jump shot. Last year, he was at 0.94. So he's literally more than 20% better than he was last year with his pull-up jump shot, which is huge. Uh, uh, I thought Malik Monk was awesome in this game. He had a a couple of – he had a ridiculous block and help side in transition. He had this ridiculous bounce pass to a cutter. He had a a, a between-the-legs sidestep pull-up three that was just unbelievably nasty. Malik Monk just has a bag, man. It's, It's ridiculous. Keon Ellis. It's been an interesting kind of a, a guy for the Kings this year that no one really expected. Hit five threes in this game, can take some point of attack assignments, has some decent length for the position. You know, this is a, a kind of archetype that we've been talking about with the Kings for a while, like a guy that's more of an off-ball player, that's more of a, a, a an athlete that can help on the defensive end of the floor. His point of attack metrics this year in isolation and in pick and roll have been excellent. I thought that was a, kind of a revelation last night. Uh, on the thund- Thunder front, Josh Giddy had his best game in a while. Teams are ignoring him off the ball and they're blitzing off of him in ball screens, but he's being aggressive in catch and shoot situations. He had three catch and shoot jump shots in this game. He's also making really good reads out of the short roll, which is a good use of him to be honest, just because he has that passing ability. He's tall enough to kind of see over the defense as he's making those reads. Didn't like that floater he forced late in the game, but I thought it was uh, an encouraging game from him. They also did a lot of hedging and recovering on De'Aaron Fox to try to keep Dort on him. And I the, I didn't think the hedges were particularly sharp. De'Aaron was able to split a lot of them, and it, it didn't really stop him from getting downhill. And I think they have the perimeter defenders to just switch more in those situations. And so I thought that tactically is something they could have adjusted. But overall, I thought they played pretty well. And again, like Sacramento's really good, and you got a Chet Holmgren three in the corner that could have given you a lead. It was a decent look. It was mildly contested. Chet Holmgren got another wide open three on the left wing late in the game. Jalen Williams had a wide open three on the left wing in the game, so like... You shoot a little bit better, you have a chance to win that game. Uh, One other thing on the OKC front, there was a report this morning, I believe from Bleacher Report, that the Jazz are going to be listening to offers on Lori Markkinen. And I've talked about this all year for the Pacers and the Thunder, but that is the specific archetype they need. They need a big forward that can help them on the defensive glass, that can help them in help defense situations, and play well in their drive-and-kick system. And I think Lori is absolutely perfect for that. The Thunder have the assets to make it happen. I saw... Some people on Twitter being like, they shouldn't overpay. Danny Ainge is going to make you want to overpay. And like, I get that. And like, don't get me wrong from a negotiation standpoint, Danny Ainge is going to have a really strong position, but here's the deal. Like you have a shit ton of draft picks. You have all of the talent in the world. You're what the second seed in the the West right now. You are literally on the precipice of being able to contend in the Western conference. And like Lori Markinen is the perfect fit and I understand the patient approach, and I'm not saying you call them and you give them everything you have, but if you have to overpay a little bit to get Lori Markin in, you overpay a little bit to get Lori Markin in. At the end of the day... Like we've seen too often with this, uh, uh, with this stuff where, like, when teams like Miami get super, super picky about what they're willing to pay and super picky about who they're willing to go after. And the next thing you know, you move on and they don't have anybody, right? And again, the Thunder don't have anybody in house that fits that big forward alongside Chet kind of archetype. I think they're going to have to go outside to find that. And to me, it's like, it's pretty straightforward that uh, a guy like Lori kind of fills that need perfectly. All right, moving on to the Warriors. So they dropped another game to the Clippers last night. They're now ten and fourteen. According to DraftKings, the Warriors are now plus one twenty-five to make the playoffs, in minus one fifty-five to miss it. So again, I have to bet hundred and fifty-five dollars on the Warriors to miss the playoffs to make hundred. That's a that's a substantial, you know, uh, a signal that Vegas thinks that there's a a much better chance than not that Golden State misses the playoffs. And now, here's the thing. I've been mostly a Warriors positive force this year, right? And I feel strongly that given the information at the time that that was the right uh, the the right approach at the time, but the Draymond suspension, like him taking himself out indefinitely, officially puts them in a really challenging predicament. And I am for the first time this season seriously worried about the Warriors. To give you an idea, as of today, they are three games out of the 10 spot. So they are three games out of the play-in at this point. And it's not just three games in a vacuum. The teams ahead of you are Phoenix, New Orleans, Houston, the Clippers, and the Lakers. I don't think the Suns, Clippers, or Lakers are going to drop. They have too much talent. They have just significantly more talent in the regular season right now than the Warriors, right? Houston and New Orleans... I, I I see is like, those are the teams you're targeting is like, oh, maybe we'll be able to jump them before the end of the season. But again, it's not from today, full strength warriors versus full strength Pelicans and, and Rockets. Like you're going to be without Draymond for an undisclosed amount of time. And I would argue that, you know, Draymond's probably your second or third best player. And if he's not available, then Houston and New Orleans are better regular season teams than you. It's going to be a challenge, and 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 like he just put him in in a in a grind in a bind because like now, you have to finish three games better than one of those teams, and you're going to be without Draymond for a while. A lot has to go right. You're going to need bona fide MVP play from Steph Curry. Clay Thompson had a big night the other night. You're going to need him to be incredible. You're going to need Podzemski to, to, to pop. And I, I saw that uh, Kerr moved Podzemski and, and Kaminga into the starting lineup. I thought that was interesting. You're going to need a lot of huge contributions from everybody. It's going to look a lot like, again, like we've seen this before. This has happened before because the Warriors are in a position where they do have the ability to make a trade, right? They have a desirable asset in Jonathan Kaminga. They've got a salary filler in the form of Chris Paul. And they have draft compensation that they can offer. So they are in a position where they can go get somebody. So let's look at the Warriors or the Lakers last year as an example. All year last year, the Lakers were outside of the plan, right? Similar kind of predicament. And they also had assets. They had two first-round draft picks that they could use. They ended up only using one, but they had two first-round draft picks they could use. And they had this Russell Westbrook expiring contract, which I know everyone said last year no one wanted, but of course people wanted it, An expiring contract is real value. That's why they were able to make a trade, right? So the Lakers had this asset thing that they were sitting on that they could do something with, and the Warriors have this asset thing that they can do something with. You remember what happened with the Lakers last year? LeBron James went down with injury, Anthony Davis played like a freaking MVP for a while and floated the ship. Then Anthony Davis went down and it was like LeBron, Dennis Schroeder, and Russell Westbrook who just played like fucking crazy and just hung around 500, right? They just lingered around 500, just staying alive long enough so that when the trade hit, they were then able to go on a run with the actual you know balanced roster that they needed to be a significantly above 500 team. So that's the mold that you're looking at for the Warriors. The question is, do you have even as much firepower as that Lakers team did at that point in the year? And I I would say it's close, certainly if Steph Curry can reach that MVP level. But I think they might have to start looking to make that move sooner than later. That doesn't mean you go make a stupid move. That doesn't mean you go overpay or go for the wrong guy. But well, you got to start looking now, and what's concerning about that specifically is Mike Don Dunle- had this uh, this uh, pod or excuse me this uh, interview the other day where he basically said like we'll see how it goes over the next fifteen to twenty games, which is concerning on a couple of different levels because first of all it's like are you insinuating that Draymond's going to be out that long because that might be a death sentence, and then two like let's say Draymond is out that long, what if you wait and see and then the season's over? Steph Curry's thirty five. You cannot afford to... Don't do what the Lakers did and waste prime seasons of LeBron James's career with stupidity. Don't do that. Like, it's time right now to start looking for what you can do to kind of revamp the situation. Uh, I, I, originally, had Draymond not been suspended, I would have been like, wait for the deadline. Had Draymond not been suspended you lean into it this season, you're, you're hovering around the play-in in that 7 eight, 9 range, right? Like, you're a little bit mediocre. This, uh, the, like, uh, the Warriors have the sixth easiest remaining schedule, I believe, by opponent win percentage. So, like, there's some opportunity there to regain some get ground in the standings. And then you pull the trigger at the deadline, you negotiate more staunchly, you try to make something happen in February. But, with Draymond being out, this next month now could literally submarine the season. Because if you fall from three games back of the 10 seed to six games back of the 10 seed, it's over at that point. You're not outplaying those teams by six games in a couple of months. That's not happening. You, like, so we're officially in crisis mode with the Warriors, is my point. If Draymond's going to be out for a long period of time, you don't have the horses to, to rack up regular season wins. So you, you either got to blow the whole damn thing up, or you've got to pivot pretty quickly here. you got the pieces to do so. I think it's time to start calling Toronto. I think it's time to start calling Utah. I think it's time to start calling Portland. See if you can't get some firepower in the building to help. Um, we're going to talk about it here in a, mi- uh, in a minute, but I'd, I'd, I'd even be keeping an eye on Cleveland there and see if maybe you can uh, uh, poach Donovan Mitchell. That's another guy I'd be keeping an eye on. Speaking of Donovan Mitchell, let's move on. So Darius Garland breaks his jaw. He's going to be out for a while. Evan Mobley has had knee surgery. He's going to be out for probably at least two months. They're already in the nine seed right now. The bottom can fall out here pretty quickly. And Donovan Mitchell is a guy that could be a free agent as soon as next summer. Not this coming summer, but the one after. He's got one guaranteed year left on a deal. He's got a player option for like $37 million after that. Probably going to drop out of that one and, and, uh, and look to become a free agent. I've also talked consistently when I talk Cavs, that the too-small-guard model is kind of doomed to fail. I also know that Cavs fans love Darius Garland. So, to me, it points a lot of signs in the direction of what happens if Donovan Mitchell gets to the end of next season and just simply doesn't want to stay? He's worth too much to let go for nothing, right? In the short term, right now you're a nine-seed, And two of your top four players are going to be out for a considerable amount of time here. Now, you could say, hey, Donovan, just do the best you can. Keep us as close to 500 as possible. And when when all these guys come back, we'll fight our way up to a playing spot so that we could go play Boston in the first round. So that we could go play Milwaukee in the first round and be gigantic underdogs and probably lose. So at a certain point, like, if you are under the impression, and again, this is up to Donovan, because if Donovan's like, I want to stay, like let's, work out a, like, let's figure out a deal, I want to stay, then you can make decisions accordingly. But it's worth approaching Donovan Mitchell and being like, hey, man, like, are you going to stay? Because you're going to be bad this year. Like, that's almost a certainty. This season, it's, I don't want to say it's completely a lost cause, but like, at this point for Cleveland, this season is in a really dark spot. So, if there was a year to be bad, it'd be this year. And from that standpoint, that's where I see Donovan Mitchell as the obvious target for a, a trade around this deadline. Because when we envision the idealized version of the Cavs, what do I, what do I always talk about? I envision one of those guards. And Evan Mobley at the five in the long run. Next to a big athletic forward, preferably another big athletic forward, and then a perimeter defender at the two guard spot. That's kind of the what I view view is the idealized version of the 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 Cavs. I talk a lot about this as like the the ideal modern basketball build. You want a skill guard. Then you want like a point of attack off ball guard. Then you want like a slender forward that can defend on the perimeter. Then you want a big forward that can defend inside and help and help defense and defensive rebounding situations. Then you want an athletic center that can switch and run and drop coverage while also being an offensive threat. Evan Mobley fits that mold. Darius Garland fits the skill guard mold. You know, like Max Struess in the short term, I think would be perfectly fine as a point of attack guy who plays off the ball at the two. And like, I like Karis Levert, but I, I, you probably don't want him as your starting three. So it's that three and four spot that you're looking to bolster at this point, right? That's where you could potentially use Donovan Mitchell as the vehicle with which to shore that up and then be ready to make a run either, you know, next season, essentially, right? And, and I think, I think uh, the, like, so now let's see, what type of teams would be interested in Donovan Mitchell? Teams that have size on the perimeter that can afford to bring in a small guard, teams that can offer big athletic forwards to Cleveland because that's what they would want, Cle- uh, big athletic forwards that fit their timeline, and also that have the ability to put that size next to Donovan Mitchell so that they uh, are not in a similar predicament that Cleveland was in, right? Then you're also looking at like what Donovan Mitchell's specific archetype is. He's a scoring guard. So we're looking at teams that need backcourt scoring. Now, the first two obvious ones are the power players, right? Miami and Philly. But, uh, Philly's got a ton of assets. They uh, feel some urgency to try to get something done alongside Joel Embiid. The, right now they're clearly below Boston and Milwaukee. That's an obvious target, right? Philly could be like, we're going to put Donovan Mitchell next to Tyrese Maxey and we're just going to have a shit ton of offensive skill next to Joel Embiid, right? The, uh, Miami piece is like, they missed out on Dane. They missed out on Brad Beal. Like, they got to get one of these guys. That team desperately needs backcourt shot creation. Donovan Mitchell's an obvious kind of, like, fit there. Philly does have the advantage there, though, because they have more assets to give than Miami does. The Knicks are another team I look at. They lean so much on uh, Jalen Brunson and Julius Randle to create everything. They don't have great options at the two spot. Like, they just benched Quentin Grimes. He was a below-average starter. They benched him for Dante DiVincenzo, but Dante DiVincenzo is better as a backup guard, too. So, like, you're you're in a weird spot there. Uh, RJ Barrett is having the most efficient scoring season of his career and kind of fits more of like a complimentary piece next to Darius Garland. So that'd be an interesting kind of salary filler piece. And the Knicks have plenty of draft compensation that they can offer. So like, that's a, a, a team that I'd keep an eye on Toronto, simple case of they have too many forwards and not enough guards. And like, like a guy, a couple guys, like, a, a an OG and an OB would be super interesting in Cleveland, right? Like a Pascal Siakam would be super interesting in Cleveland, but Toronto desperately needs guards because, like, Dennis Schroeder and Gary Trent Jr. are good, but they're not – they're they're uh, compared to the other serious teams in the league that's not a very good backcourt. So, like, you're looking at an option there. Uh, Chicago already apparently has made calls trying to trade for Darius Garland. So, like, why not try for Donovan Mitchell if that was the case? Minnesota is another interesting team I was thinking of. They're 18th in offense this year, and they have legit title aspirations. And, like, the one weak spot in that lineup that you look at is Mike Conley just given his age and athleticism, right? Uh, the Pelicans, if they wanted to pivot off of Zion Williamson, that'd be an interesting option. And then lastly, like I said in the last segment, the Golden State Warriors, it's worth a phone call. It's worth a phone call. You'd be like, hey, Jonathan Kamingo would be perfect next to Evan Mobley. How does that sound to you guys? You know, uh, 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 Chris Paul just can help mentor Darius Garland. You know, And then we can at least give Steph a, a bona fide number two next to him. You know, and like if you have Donovan Mitchell and Steph Curry, you have the ability to play bigger on the front line because of all the pull-up shooting you have in that lineup. So again, like uh, it's too early to say for sure if Donovan Mitchell will even, you know, is even uh, not wanting to resign or if Cleveland would be even willing to deal him. But I think some d- signs are pointing in that direction. So I thought it was kind of doing a brief d- uh, deep dive into it. All right. My MVP ladder. So uh, I'm going to start doing this every weekend and I, I was thinking long and hard about this because i I wanted to to talk MVP, but I don't want it to look like what my prediction would be for who's going to win the MVP because it just is it's so much based on narrative, which I find profoundly uninteresting. It's so much based on voting trends that like I disagree with and and, and specific things that like I don't think should factor into MVP. So what I'm gonna do instead is like, I'm just going to do this MVP ladder every weekend as though it's my own. Meaning like, this is just simply how I think the MVP award should work. I've made one tweak to my MVP criteria. I used to in the past be like, hey, like you got to factor in postseason success. All of this is part of a journey towards the playoffs and towards the Larry O'Brien. It's a stepping stone in that direction. But the league has made it abundantly clear through their voting tendencies that they don't care about the postseason. So what I'm going to do is my off-season player rankings that I do every August, those are going to be based on playoff success, and I want my MVP ladders during the season to strictly be a recognition of overall two-way impact on winning by a single player. And the one thing I'll do to weight it is like degree of difficulty and like what your team needs out of you compared to the, you know, the roster availabilities. I'm going to use that as like kind of a swing factor in some of these cases. All right, so I'm going to be counting down from 10. This first week, I'm going to hit all 10 players. In the future, I'm just going to talk about the movement from specific guys. But number 10 so far for our first MVP ladder, Kevin Durant. He's been the one stable force for a team that's been riddled with injuries to start the season. He's averaging 31 points per game, which is the second highest mark of his career on 64% true shooting, and he's legitimately flirting with a 50-50-90 season, meaning 50% from the field, 50% from three, and 90% from the line. He is still one of the most efficient scorers in basketball, and he's done a lot to stabilize, like I said, a pretty uh, uh, um, inconsistent environment with injuries there in Phoenix. Number nine, Jason Tatum. I am a little disappointed in him this season. He's settling for a shit ton of pull-up jump shots, even though he can't make them. I've been a little bit disappointed with him at the end of games as well. That said, still the most efficient scoring season of his career. And the lower volume mostly has to just do with some of the roster changes they went uh, went through over the summer. He's also been the fourth best post-up player in the league this year. 22 players in the NBA have run at least 75 post-ups, and he's fourth in efficiency at 1.15 points per possession. Number eight, LeBron James. He's averaging 25, 8, and 7, shooting a career high from two-point range, 41% from three, which matches his best season in 2013, which was 64% true shooting. Also averaging his uh, highest amount of steals per game since 2015. And this is the crazy one for LeBron in his MVP case. The Lakers are 18 points better per 100 possessions when he's on the floor versus when he's off. He also had the most impressive individual accomplishment of the season so far, winning the in-season tournament MVP, dominating a field that included Kevin Durant, that included Giannis Antetokounmpo, that included Damian Lillard, that included Jason Tatum, that included Tyrese Saliburton. Just a stacked field that he ended up at the top of the pile at the end of it and won the MVP LeBron's at number eight. Number seven, De'Aaron Fox. He is the best combination of pull-up shooting and downhill speed in the NBA this year. He's been the second best pull-up jump shooter in the league behind Tyrese Halliburton, making uh his jump shots at or pull-up jump shots at 1.14 points per shot, which is insane. He also is the third best guard at scoring in the paint. He scored 220 points in the paint this year, which is behind only Shea Gilgus Alexander and Tyrese Maxey, both of which are lesser pull-up shooters than De'Aaron Fox this season. He's led the Kings to a lot of wins over good teams, most recently SGA and the Thunder. He's gone head-to-head with a lot of the best players in the league and come out on top this season. I have him at number seven. Number six, Nikola Jokic. His jumper's been off this year. A Jokic jumper has been worth 0.22 points fewer than they were worth last year, but still averaging a career high in points, still at 61% in true shooting, leads the league in rebounds at 13 rebounds per game, and the Nuggets are the two-seed in the West, despite Jamal Murray missing a lot of time in and out of the lineup. Number five, Luka Doncic. Also having the most uh, efficient scoring season of his career, fueled by excellent pull-up shooting. He's shooting 54% in effective field goal percentage on his pull-up jump shot. That reliable like step-back jump shot that he's hitting right now is just, is just killing teams. And he's been also, similar to Kevin Durant, the most consistent force on a surprisingly good team, despite... His co-star being out a lot. Kyrie Irving has played in just 541 of 1152 minutes for the Mavs this year. And the Mavericks are 15 and 9 in the four seed, which is a far cry from where they were last year. I have him at number five. Shea Gilgis Alexander at number four. The Thunder are just three games back of the best record in the league at 15 and 8. He's averaging 31, 6 and 6 on a career high, 64% true shooting percentage. And his self-creation metrics are off the charts. 1.23 points per post-up. 1.19 points per ISO, 1.09 points per pick and roll. Those are all off the charts. And now he's consistently drawing two to the ball and pick and roll, which for all of the ball handling and, and shooting and passing that they have on the backside there when they run those four on threes has been deadly for the Thunder. They get great shots every time. I have SGA at number three or four. Number three, Tyrese Halliburton. He's the best pick-and-roll ball handler in the year by a mile. He's the best pull-up shooter in the league by a mile. He's entered into my top tier of passers this year. He's just single-handedly anchoring the best offense in basketball. I think he's on an all-time great trajectory. He's having an incredible season. I'm a huge Tyrese Halliburton fan. Even against that ridiculously aggressive Bucks coverage the other day, I thought he did really well um, given the amount of talent that's around him. Number two, Giannis Antetokounmpo. It feels kind of like a revenge campaign for him. His night-to-night effort is the highest that I've seen since his MVP seasons. Career-high 32 points per game. Career-high 66% true shooting. Career-high offensive rebounds per game. Big one for him. And his touch away from the rim is better than it's been in a couple of seasons. All super, super encouraging. He's also having an excellent defensive season. Changed that Pacers game the other night just by aggressively switching on to Tyrese Halliburton and uh, taking away some of the advantages he naturally gets in ball screens. But number one, a clear number one at this point in the season is Joel Embiid. 34 points per game, 12 rebounds, and 6 assists on 64% true shooting. They are 16-7 and despite losing James Harden and just two games back of the best record in basketball. Here's an encouraging stat for you, too. Two years ago, Joel Embiid made just six field goals per game in the paint. Last year, 7.4. This year, 7.7. He's also shooting 70% on hook shots, and he's taking hook shots about twice as often as he did last year. If you guys remember after the postseason last year, I talked about how Joel Embiid is too reliable on that mid-range pull-up jump shot. He's got to have a more consistent shot-making game closer to the rim. We're seeing some uh, encouraging stats there that could bode well for him in the playoffs really just needs to stay healthy at this point so we can see him and what he's capable of in April and May. All right, guys, that is all I have for today. As always, I sincerely appreciate your support. We're taking the rest of the weekend off. We'll be back on Monday with power rankings as well as some reactions to the weekend's games. Uh, games. I will see you guys then. the volume let's chat about how to get what you need for your home when you don't have a lot of cash or credit you can do that at Aaron's. rent to own appliances furniture and tech from top brands like hp samsung and ashley but say you don't need it anymore no problem at Aaron's, you can return your product at any time or even upgrade it For something new. Life's always changing. With errands, your stuff can change right along with it. Keep it, return it, upgrade it. Errands fits your life instead of the other way around. Approval isn't guaranteed, and some restrictions apply. See your local store for details.